Hear God call us to worship this morning from Habakkuk 3 and Psalm 16. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Beloved, our God desires an honest relationship with us. And so he invites us to be honest about our sin. Honest about our brokenness. And to see his response in which he is absolutely honest with us. That the only way that we have forgiveness of our sin and healing from our brokenness is in Jesus. And so he invites us to confess our sin, to repent, and to see our need for Jesus, and to see that in Jesus it is finished. We're going to do that this morning by using our confession that will show up on your screen, and then after we say this confession together, we'll spend a few moments quietly going before our God and confessing our sin and seeing his grace to us in Jesus. But let's confess together this morning, beloved. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in love you have ordered every step of our lives. But we want to chart our own course. You have promised that all things work together for our good. But when things are not to our liking, we are easily angered and often try to run from you. Forgive us. Teach us to trust in your goodness. Convince us that in Christ you are pursuing and loving us. Show us that in wrath you have remembered mercy. Remind us that the cross and empty tomb define and transform us. Help us cling to you Because Christ has laid hold of us. All is grace. Amen. Now let's take a few moments uh, to quietly go before our God. Confess our sin. See his grace to us in Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess all of these things in the hope of your mercy to us, which is fully and finally seen and your one and only Son, our Savior Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Beloved, God wants an honest relationship with us. And God is honest about his posture to us in Jesus. So hear this offer and assurance of forgiveness and grace in Christ. This morning from Psalm 103. The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Beloved, we are forgiven because of what Christ has done for us. And now let's declare what it is that we believe about what Christ has done and what it is that, that, that it means that we are united to him by the Holy Spirit. And we're going to do that. I'm going to ask a question and then let's respond by answering together. Beloved, what is it we believe about Christ and our union with him? We believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man. Although he was tempted just as we are, he lived a perfect life without sin. He willingly became our sin on the cross, absorbing the just judgment that is due for our sin. In his death, Jesus defeated sin and death itself. Because of his victory on the cross, The grave could not hold him. Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended to the Father, where he rules and reigns. 
interceding for his people. Because of the Spirit, our lives are now in union with Christ. All that is true of Jesus is true of us. We have been released from the dominating power of sin. In Jesus, we are free to confess our sin without fear of punishment. We now live in confidence that there is no corner of creation his salvation does not claim. Our desire is to grow more and more like Christ. We long for the day when the last will be first, the lost will be found, and the curse will be no more. Heaven and earth reunited. Jesus is ours, and we are his forever. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Look forward to looking at this book together uh, this morning named Habakkuk. We are still in the prophets. I know it seems like an eternity that we've been in the Old Testament. We've got a few more weeks and then we move into the New Testament. So this morning we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk. And I just wanted to remind you that we are going through the entire scripture this year, looking at the basic story of the Bible. And so what we have tried to communicate to you, uh, our framework, work for understanding the scripture uh, correspond to the numbers three, four, and five. So I just wanted to remind you of these because I hope that you are learning them. I hope that you are thinking through these numbers as we look at the books of the Bible each week, and I hope that they are helping you understand the meaning of the scriptures. So three stands for three loves. We have derived these three loves from the first couple of chapters of Genesis, and they form how we were built and made. So three stands for three loves. Love God, love people, and love place. We find these right in the first couple chapters. It's how we were made. We were made to love God, love people, and love place where God has put us. Four stands for the four-part story. This is important because we often think of Christianity and the Christian message as just a two-part story, but it is really a four-part story. Creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration, and typically we have a tendency to just think of the Bible as rebellion and redemption. And even both of those seem to be truncated in some way. But if we're going to understand the scriptures, if we're going to understand reality, we need all four parts to make sense of what God has told us in his word. Five, there are five threads that you can find throughout the scriptures. There are more than this, but we have tried to express the five most important threads throughout the scriptures. God has always had a people. He has always been building his church. Always, always, always. Sin is real, the second thread, but it does not get the last word. Sin is real, but doesn't get the last word. Grace. Grace. God initiates. God pursues. God saves. The universal message of scripture is grace. Four, he did it. Jesus actually accomplished something. He defeated sin through his death and resurrection. He actually accomplished something. He is a literal savior. Five, everything is moving toward Jesus. Everything in the scriptures, everything in your life and in my life, Everything is moving toward Jesus. So if you remember those numbers, three, four, and five, if you can learn those, then as we look at the different passages each week, I hope that you can connect with all that the Bible has for us. So this morning I picked several verses from uh, the book of Habakkuk to, to communicate and read to you so that you can get a glimpse of the heart of this book and I want to jump in and read. And then after that, I'll pray and ask God's help. And then we'll start trying to unpack this book together. So this is God's word. It's true. You can bank your life upon it. This is a portion of a letter from home. Listen to this. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence 
and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. By the way, that's just another word for the Babylonians. So those are synonymous terms. The Chaldeans and Babylon or Babylonians means the exact same thing. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet... I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. I know that's a lot to take in. So I want to pray and ask the Lord to help us. And then let's try to understand these verses, this book together. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. It tells us what is true. It communicates your thoughts It explains who we are. It all leads us to Jesus. So Holy Spirit, act on us. Change our minds. Open up our hearts. Bring us to the Savior this morning that we might see him afresh and behold something of his glory so that our lives would then reflect him. We pray this for your glory, Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Habakkuk is a very unique book. It's unique because it is so deeply personal. If you were to go back and read all these three chapters, you would find that the book of Habakkuk is a record of the conversation that he has with God. He is expressing himself to God. He is saying what is going on in his mind and in his heart, and he is saying all of that to God. He is trying to work out how to understand his life and what's going on around him. And because of that, this book is very, very unique. You see, oftentimes we think of the Bible as some type of answer book. And I want to remind you that even though the Bible has a lot of answers in it, Before that, it is fundamentally and first of all, relational. The Bible is a relational book. It is highlighting the supremacy of relationships. Now, here's the point this morning. 
Here's my billboard to tell you what I'm going to talk about, the point of the book, the point of what I want to communicate. Habakkuk shows us what an honest relationship with God looks like. Habakkuk shows us what an honest relationship with God looks like. And there'll be these components. There's genuine dialogue, meaning there's questions and answers, and then there's time to process and think through the question and think through the answer and what it means. There's real dialogue. And in the midst of that dialogue, what we will find is that we always have opportunities to get outside of ourselves and to give who we are to God, to find ourselves in him. So that's the point. Habakkuk shows us what an honest relationship with God looks like. Here's point number one, conversation with God. Conversation with God. Let's jump right in. If you notice the first three verses, Habakkuk is expressing what's going on inside about a very specific thing. And he starts off by saying, basically, Lord, how long do I have to continue to repeat myself? How long do I have to say the same thing over and over and over? Why are you ignoring me? Why won't you answer? When I look around, all that I see is destruction and rebellion and wickedness and sin. How long, Lord, do I have to keep bringing this to your attention? And it's highlighted in verse 3. The Habakkuk says, why are you sitting idly? Why are you not doing anything? All that I see around me is rebellion. And you are just being idle? How is that possible? How can you just sit there and not move one way or another? Habakkuk is expressing one of the age-old questions that all of us have and have had at one time or another and still have. And we'll probably have in the future. How in the world does God relate to sin and rebellion? Is he good? If he's good, why is this happening? If he's God, why can't he stop it? How does this God, the God of the universe, how does he sit there idle when what is going on all around is rebellion? Now let's go even deeper. You see, here's some background into Habakkuk's life. Habakkuk saw the fall of Assyria. Remember last week we looked at the prophet Nahum and he talked about how God was going to bring judgment upon the Assyrians? Habakkuk saw it happen. Not only that, but he saw the rise of Babylon. He knew that Babylon was a nation that didn't want to serve the living God at all. And he saw that they were gaining more and more power, that their empire was expanding, and he was growing increasingly afraid. He was growing increasingly insecure. But here is the real focus for Habakkuk. He knew what went on with Assyria. He observed what was going on with Babylon. But here's the real focus. Habakkuk lived during the time in which there was tremendous reformation and revival, awakening for God's people under the rule of Josiah, one of the kings. There was a time in which God's people found God's word, which had been missing for years and years and years. It was a time in which God's people be, were awakened to who God is and what they were supposed to do, why he had made them and the mission that he had given them. And they were becoming more and more alive to those things. And even though Habakkuk lived during that time, it didn't last very long. And what was going on when Habakkuk wrote this, these short chapters, was that God's people were living in outright rebellion. They were not doing what God had told them to do. They were not being who God created them to be. They were not following the mission that God had given them all the way back, even to creation. They weren't loving him. They weren't loving people. They weren't loving place. They were living for self. They were living in outright rebellion. 
And Habakkuk sees this with God's people and he is beside himself because he thinks that God is just sitting there doing nothing. And if we were to bring this into our own time and and put ourselves in this type of mentality as Habakkuk, we could say similar things, right? I mean, in, in the last number of years, 5, 10, 20, even more than that, there's been this threat of nuclear war. It's always kind of there. It comes and goes, but yet it's there. In the not-too-distant past, we have fresh memories of radical, extreme religiosity and how that has affected the landscape of the whole world. Even more specifically to our time now, We're dealing with this pandemic with COVID-19 and nobody knows the outcomes. Nobody knows what's actually going to happen as a result of COVID-19. And even when you think about the church over the last 30, 50, 60 years, God's people have really gotten to the point that they have become bedfellows with a political party. And tried to mix God's word with politics. And not only that, it's like the church has adopted a mission of trying to gain cultural power and influence. As a mission to try to get cultural power. It's like the church in America has adopted this mentality of thinking that America is the crowning achievement of God's missional activity rather than just the tip of the tail of what God has been doing for thousands and thousands of years. Habakkuk sees rebellion. We see rebellion and wonder, God, what are you doing? Well, God answers Habakkuk in verse 6. And he says, Habakkuk, you're right. But I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And they will come in. And they will overtake a people that they had not before known. God says, here's my response, Habakkuk. I am going to raise up the Babylonians. And they are going to discipline my people for their rebellion. Well, if you notice the next verses we read, verses 13 of chapter 1, starting there, Habakkuk is wrestling through what's going on with God's response to him, thinking about the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says this in verse 13, Lord, Lord, you have pure eyes than to look upon evil. How in the world can you raise up the Babylonians who have no regard for who you are, how can you raise them up to discipline a more righteous people? God, the Babylonians are worse off than your people are. How can you use them to discipline your people? God, your solution is worse than the problem. Have you ever felt that in your life? Habakkuk expresses that to God. God, your solution is worse than the problem. And he even says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I am going to go up on the watchtower and I'm going to stand there, I'm going to pace around, and I'm going to see whether or not God is actually going to do this. And that leads to chapter 2. That leads into God's response in talking about the Babylonians and God responding to Habakkuk when Habakkuk says, how can you use this people who don't follow you at all to discipline your people who are closer to you? And God says to Habakkuk, verses 8 through 13, it's just a little uh, concentrated section in which God says, you know what, Habakkuk? The Babylonians need mercy as well. They too are rebellious. They too are building an empire much like Assyria based on blood and power. They too are stealing from others. They 
also need my mercy. And here's the punchline. Look at verse 14 of chapter 2. God says this to Habakkuk. Habakkuk, the time is coming in which the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk, you're right. The Babylonians need mercy. But I am not just concerned about my people's rebellion. I'm concerned about other people's rebellion, Babylonians or whoever else. I am concerned about all sin. I am concerned about all wickedness, all rebellion. And the time is coming in which the knowledge of my glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Habakkuk, in my plan, the day is coming in which sin will be removed and my glory will reign. Well, Habakkuk is left to wrestle with what all that means. He's left to think through the reality of expressing himself to God and being concerned about evil and rebellion and how that relates to a holy God. He's left to hear what God says to him and to work that out into his life and to ponder what God is saying and think through how he is looking at the world and how he is processing everything. He is left to really wrestle with this, just like we are. Well, that's the conversation with God. That's the conversation. Here's the second part. We're going to look at takeaways. I've got three takeaways for you. The first takeaway is this, and this is profoundly true from my introduction all the way to the last verse of this book. This is an action item. Talk to God. Talk to God. Remember, Habakkuk is wrestling with this issue that we all wrestle with. How can God be good? How can God be God? And yet we see evil and rebellion and sin and disease and death and all kinds of violence. Habakkuk has the exact same question. And he's not trying to sell a book. He's not trying to figure out who agrees with him in other parts of the world and and disciple others to think the same way he does about evil and God. He's not trying to proselytize. What he does is he talks to God. He expresses himself to God. He lays his soul bare before God. He talks to God. And I want to encourage all of you and encourage me as well. Talk to God. And I know for some of you that may sound incredibly radical, Because some of you have told me, and I know this is true, that you have grown up in situations in which you were taught not to question God or the Scriptures. I know some of you have grown up in environments in which this is what God says, don't ever question it. And I want you to see that Habakkuk is doing the opposite of that. Habakkuk is questioning God. He's questioning what he sees. He's trying to make sense of it. He's talking to God. He's expressing himself. And I want to encourage you to do the same thing. I also know that some of you perhaps have wrestled with this exact issue that Habakkuk is wrestling with. God is God. God is good. How does that relate to evil and brokenness in the world that we see? Suffering, disease, everything else. I know for some of you, you've thought about that question and you've drawn the conclusion that you can't come up with a reason how that could possibly make sense. And therefore, you think that you can be justified in not giving your life to God and not exploring Christianity anymore and writing off God, and writing off the Scriptures, and writing off Christianity. I understand that. And I want you to hear me say that what Habakkuk is encouraging us in talking to God is that we can be very bold 
in how we address God and what we bring to him. We can be bold, but we need to be careful that we also recognize our arrogance. You know, it's pretty arrogant to think that because there's a complex issue and because I can't think of a reason why it could possibly, how it could possibly work or how things could possibly fit together because I can't think of a reason, therefore it is all not true. That is a huge leap. And it also communicates an enormous amount of confidence in your own, in my own reasoning as if I have the ability and I should have the ability to make sense of incredibly complex things. I want to submit to you that it is awfully arrogant to live that way. And I want to also submit this, that if you're like me, you really don't live a lot of your life that way. In other words, there are lots of things that you don't completely understand and don't make perfect sense to you and you can't think of a reason of how it all makes sense and fits together and yet, you continue on. I'll give you some examples. These are from my own life and maybe some of them will resonate with you, maybe not. I have no idea how my phone works. I don't know all the complexities of this hitting that signal and this doing this and this and how it functions. I don't know perfectly how my phone works. I don't know how my car works. I couldn't explain to you what happens when I turn the key, push the button to start the car and where the gas goes and how it works with the transmission and everything else in my car. I couldn't explain every single thing to you. I can't explain to you how my body works. I can't explain to you the relationship of the intricacies of each side of my brain. I can't explain to you perfectly how oxygen and blood work together in my body. I can't explain all those things to you. And you know what? I'm not planning on stop using my phone or stop driving my car or stop breathing until I figure it out. There are lots of things in my life that I don't perfectly understand. And there are lots of things in my life that are beyond me. And just because I can't think of a reason doesn't mean that I can make the huge jump and say, well, this isn't true. This can't be true. Talk to God and be bold but also be willing to recognize that maybe there is some arrogance at work there and maybe be willing to admit that. Takeaway number two, God is always doing something beyond us that includes us. Listen to verse five of chapter one. It is an incredible summary of this entire conversation that Habakkuk has with God. It's an incredible statement from God to Habakkuk, to us, about what is going on. Listen to this. This is what verse 5 says of chapter 1. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Do you hear that? God flat out says to Habakkuk, he flat out says to us, I am doing something in your time that even if I told you what was going on, you wouldn't believe it. In other words, it's beyond you, Habakkuk. It's beyond me. Let me tell you what that, here's one way to understand that. Babylon was going to come in and overtake God's people and take them into captivity. That actually happened in history. Babylon overthrew the southern kingdom and took them into captivity. And after a period of time, some of God's people returned to Jerusalem and they ended up rebuilding the temple and they ended up rebuilding the wall and they ended up setting up shop again in Jerusalem. 
But there were a lot of exiles who remained in Babylon and who remained in Assyria. And they remained faithful to God. People like Daniel, people like Esther, and thousands of others. And you know what started happening with God's people that didn't return back to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity, that remained in the Babylonian empire? Synagogues started popping up all over the known world. And after Babylon, Babylon was conquered by the Greeks. And you know what happened as a result of the Greek empire? Greek became the common language among the known world. There was one language. It was Greek, and everybody knew it. And that was the common language of communication. And Rome came in and overthrew the Greek empire. And you know what Rome added to this? Roads and transportation. And when the fullness of time had come, God's people were scattered throughout. There were synagogues and places. There was a common language that people could understand and communicate together. There were roads for transportation. And when the fullness of time had come, Jesus, the God-man, came. And he lived, and he died, and he rose again. And the message of those historical events of his life and death and resurrection and the power of those historical events exploded throughout the world, overthrowing the Roman Empire and even to the point where it landed in America. To people like you and me, Habakkuk, I am doing something in your time that even if I told you what was happening, you wouldn't believe it. God has a plan and he is carrying out that plan and he always has been. Let's bring this even closer to home for us. Remember, none of us know the outcomes of what's going to happen because of the pandemic and because of COVID-19. We're trying to cope, but there's so many things we don't understand. There's so many things we don't know. You do realize that it is possible that we could face in our country an economic tsunami because of this pandemic, a healthcare tsunami because of this pandemic. You do realize that we don't know what is going to happen And what the fallout and the effects are going to be long term. Starting with schools, starting with everything. We don't know. But here's what we do know. God is always expanding his kingdom. Always, always, always. God is always magnifying Jesus That means no matter what happens as a result of the pandemic, no matter if there is an economic or healthcare tsunami, no matter what, Jesus is going to be magnified. God is going to show and prove that he is preeminent. He is supreme. He is everything. And you see, what's happening is that God is inviting Habakkuk and he's inviting us to talk with him, to be bold. He's inviting us to get outside of ourselves. He is inviting us to give ourselves to him. That's what he's doing. God is always doing something beyond us that includes us. And that leads us to the last few verses of the book of Habakkuk in chapter 3. Look at verses 16 and 17 and 18. Do you notice what Habakkuk is saying there? If you look at verse 16, if we start here, we'll pair 16 with verse 18. This is what Habakkuk is saying. He expresses in verse 16 that he feels completely overwhelmed, completely undone. Let, Let me read it for you. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk has heard what God is saying. The Babylonians are going to come. And Habakkuk, not knowing when that's going to happen or even how, 
Not knowing the future, he is undone. He is trembling, quivering. He is faint. His heart is pounding. He is completely overwhelmed. And in the midst of that, if you look at verse 18, he is able to find joy. And what that's telling you and me is this. That even in the midst of feeling overwhelmed, crushed, undone, weak in the knees, unsure about the future, even in the midst of feeling overwhelmed, we can also have joy. Having joy and feeling overwhelmed can coexist. And if you're willing to go a little bit deeper, look at what he adds to verse 16. Look at what he says in verse 17. This is what he says. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the, the, produce of the olive fail, and the, yields, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Habakkuk is saying, into the future, it looks as though I am going to lose everything. It looks like into the future there's a possibility that I will have nothing. The circumstances look horrific. It looks like there's a possibility that my circumstances are going to indicate that I've got nothing and I've lost everything. That's what he means when he talks about the fig and the fruit and the grain where there's nothing to harvest and the fact that there are no animals. Everything has been wiped out. And he's lost everything. It's not just that he's internally overwhelmed in verse 16. It's that he's expecting that circumstances are going to be catastrophically bad. And yet, verse 18 again, he has joy. You see, it's not just that we can feel overwhelmed internally and be quaking inside and what can coexist with that is joy. What he's saying in verse 17 is that we can lose everything and yet we can still have joy. He's saying that there is a joy that exists that is beyond the reach of our circumstances. There is a joy that is deeper than the circumstances of life. There is a joy that is greater than the most difficult of circumstances. And those difficult circumstances cannot affect the joy that is present. Now I tell you, I read this and I meditate on it and I think about it. And sometimes I read this passage and I think to myself, this is amazing. This is so inspiring. I want that kind of joy. I want the kind of joy that can coexist with me feeling overwhelmed. And I want the kind of joy that is out of reach of circumstances, especially bad circumstances. I want this. This is so good and so inspiring. But if I'm honest with you, when I think about this, it is absolutely crushing. Because I know that there's no way that I can do this. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, I have this fear. I have this fear that at some point in my life, I'm going to contract some type of horrific disease and that it's going to take a lot of good circumstances away from me. And I have this fear that as I endure a difficult health problem, that those that are around me will know that I've studied the Bible and I've preached a lot of sermons, and they will see it how I respond so poorly, and they will be shocked. And they will be shocked at how poorly I respond. And beloved, that is crushing to me. And maybe you have a similar thought. Maybe you think about what could happen in the future because of the pandemic or anything else. And maybe you think 
that you won't respond very well either. And maybe you're crushed internally. And maybe you will be crushed by the prospect of having to endure difficult circumstances. But beloved, I want you to look at this one more time and think back through this again. Think back through the ideas that we can be overwhelmed and at the same time have joy. Think about the ideas that there can be circumstances in which you or me, that we can lose everything, and yet there is still a joy there that is out of reach of the circumstances of our life, good or bad. Think back through that. Does it sound familiar? Does it remind you of anyone? Anyone come to mind at all in the midst of that description and thinking about those ideas? Beloved, it's telling us about Jesus. Jesus. Jesus was the one that felt internal anguish and over, being overwhelmed at the thought of going to the cross and being crucified. He was the one that lost everything and yet still had joy. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. This is telling us about our Savior and what he has done for us. Have you forgotten? He's done this for you. Has the idea of what Jesus has done become so abstract that you've forgotten that he did it for you? And if you realize that he did all of that for you, that becomes the basis of your life. And that means that your life is not based upon the circumstances, whether they are good or bad. And it means your relationship with God is not based on whether you are obeying and getting things that you think you want or that you are being disciplined and having to go through struggles. It means that Jesus is your life. And it means that you have him. And it means that circumstances, whether they're good or bad, don't ultimately define who you are. Jesus does. And if you have Jesus and he is your life and the basis of your life, what that means is that you can stop trying to secure a future that you think that you want. It means that you can stop trying to ignore your future. Because you think it's going to be so bad. It means that you can live your life every day being open to the idea of how God is going to reveal to you how much we try to be God. It means that we don't have to have all the answers. And what it means is that if Jesus is the basis of our life, we can have this joy. We can have a joy that comes from God, a joy that is otherworldly, a joy that is tied to what our Savior has done for us, that frees us from having to try to control outcomes and control the future or ignore it. It means that Jesus becomes our life. It means that God is inviting us to get out of ourselves and into Jesus. And that we would see Jesus as the purpose and motive and mission of our lives. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were willing to lose everything and do that while you are feeling overwhelmed at the same time having a joy that would bring about our redemption. Jesus, help us to give ourselves to you afresh 
affect us so that we understand that what you did, you did for me, for us. And may that change us over and over and over and over. Give us grace to get outside of ourselves and into you for your glory. Amen. Beloved, God has purposed because of Jesus to bless you, and he's going to. And I'm going to reiterate some words that he says that you can live by every day. And as you hear these words, and perhaps it's to the point where you can remember them or you've heard them so many times, well, I want to ramp it up and say, every day you get to choose to live by this blessing of God that's been blood-bought by what Jesus has done. So take these words and every day re-up, re-up in your commitment to God and re-up in being dependent on his greater commitment to you. The Lord your God is going to bless you and he is going to keep you. His smile is upon you and he is going to be gracious to you throughout this week, no matter the circumstances. And in the age to come, his presence is with you and it's with you now. And it will be with you always. And one day, our Savior will return. And the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And there will be peace. Beloved, go in the power and the hope of that peace. Because it's true now and forever. Amen. Go in his peace. Turn to the Lord, the one who's broken, the one who's torn me apart. You strike down to bind me up, you say you do.